My name is Philip Palumbo, and I'm CEO and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. Welcome to my show, The Palumbo Show, where we will be interviewing some of the most successful business owners and C-suite executives about their journey to success. After 20 years of working for some of the largest Wall Street banks and having the courage to go off my own, I now completely get it. It changes your inner soul because your name is on the door and it gives you a certain level of energy that is unexplainable. I am looking forward to this journey and learning from these self-made business people, their struggles and their successes, and how we can use that to optimize to our fullest potential, how we serve our clients and how we live our lives. Hello everyone, this is Philip Palumbo from the Palumbo Podcast, where we interview some of the most successful business people to learn how they got to the top. Today I have with me the real Jason Duncan, uh, Jason's a business coach to entrepreneurs. Uh, he runs several businesses as an entrepreneur. So we are really looking forward to this podcast and for Jason to share with us some of the great insights that he has working with business people and with his own successes. So Jason, thanks a lot for today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here, Philip, man. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Awesome, man. Me too. Me too. So so Jason, if you don't mind, give us an idea. So we just talked a little bit and, and I read about you. So right, business coaching is kind of the core of what you're doing, but you have other businesses that you're working on. So walk me back when you were younger, um, something you learned that you applied to what you're doing today, both whether it's positive or negative, some type of motivational factor. Give me a sense of what that looks like. Well, so my career, my career I wanted to go into was uh, car design. I wanted to be a car designer ever since I was a little kid. I love drawing cars. I love everything about cars. I'm still much, very much a car guy today and motorcycles. And I wanted, I got accepted to two art schools. I was going to go do that. Nice. Uh, but in the, the, the year between or the summer between my junior and senior year high school, um, I made, I made a decision. A lot of people call it a call, but I, I got called into ministry. I thought, okay, this is, this is actually what I want to do for a living. So I went into ministry, kind of got away from you know the whole art thing, didn't go to art school. And I spent 13 years uh, doing pastoral ministry. So that, while I didn't expect it to lead me into entrepreneurial success, did a lot of preparation for me to get ready to be successful as an entrepreneur. So I spent 13 years doing that. And then I got completely sick and tired of it. You know, when, when you see how the sausage is made, <laughs> sometimes you don't like, you don't, don't, don't like it anymore. So my faith never wavered. I still have faith in Jesus, still follow him to this day, but was done with the institutional church and ministry. I couldn't do it. And I went back to school, got a master's in education and I started teaching school. So I taught eighth grade American history and fell in love with teaching. And that was where wow. I really realized my, my gift yeah. of teaching. And again, didn't know that would prepare me to be uh, an entrepreneur and a business coach. But, um, you know, I spent four years doing that, lost my contract due to budget cuts coming out of the Great Recession, even though I was the number one teacher in the county for my uh, subject matter. And that's when I launched my accidental entrepreneurship <laughs> was, oh was coming out of the coming out of teaching. And then, you know, I built a multimillion dollar company and built a great team and, and uh, experienced a lot of success. And uh, now I get to teach other people how to do the same thing. And I'm absolutely in love with it. That is awesome. That is an amazing story. Oh my gosh, that is really, really cool. Really cool. So when you, so when you decided to go into more entrepreneurship versus working for corporate America, was corporate America an option at the time? Absolutely. I mean, I, I um, of course I, I had, I've got a bachelor's degree. I had, a, I had a master's degree. I had additional master's certifications. And so I was, I, I was marketable 
in the, in, you know, in the corporate world, I spent about half the time uh, when I was in ministry, also in the insurance business. I was, I was an insurance rep for several different companies, started out with Aflac, you know, did, did that type of stuff, but I was a very good salesperson. And uh, so I could go back into sales very easily. And that was, that was almost my first choice because I didn't, I wasn't an entrepreneur. I didn't really know what it was like to start a business, but I, so I, I was applying for jobs, like corporate jobs as a salesperson, as a recruiter, you know, as a, you know, a sales director in the middle of trying to get a business off the ground. And I was like, okay, which one's going to hit, <laughs> which, which one's going to pay the bills, which one's going to play the mortgage. And um, I, this is a, this is a funny story, Philip. So, so August the 15th, 2011 was the last paycheck I was ever going to get from the state of Tennessee as a school teacher. Oh my gosh. So I told my, and I, I found out in April that year that I was not going to, so it was 11 years ago. Wow. Golly, it's a time flies. So I found out in April that year that my contract was going to be renewed. So I finished out the school year. Everything was fine. Nobody was mad at me. It's just that I was the last guy hired, didn't have tenure. That's just what happens. So it didn't matter. That's how they made decisions. So I said to my wife, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to apply for jobs, but I'm going to do this business thing. But if the business thing won't hit by April the 15th, if something doesn't hit, I'll go get a job. Like I'll go, to, I'll work at Lowe's or Starbucks, right, I'll, right. I'll, whatever. No lie. April or August the 12th, three days before my self-imposed deadline. Right. Right. I walk into this uh, conference room of this hospital here in middle Tennessee, South of Nashville and made the pitch of my life. It turned out, I won, I won the, won the project and it turned out to be a $2.3 million project over the next three years. Yeah. Now that, I didn't get all that money at once, but it was a confirmation of, yeah, right. I'm going to go and I'm going to, this business thing is going to work. And, and it did. And how, uh, how, led me to where I am today. That, how awesome is that? That is such a great story, right? Because I remember this one guy, this, this person said to me, he goes, if you want to do something, put a deadline to it. Right. And when you put a deadline to something and you probably, maybe you can coach this. So your deadline was August 15th, August 12th. It was, you know, so probably August 12th, the fire you had in you was probably so incredible that, that they saw it and they said, you know what? I'm hiring this guy, the real Jason Duncan. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that was it from there. If you didn't have that deadline of August 15th, you probably would have got the business anyway, I'm sure. But there was something in that fire on that date that you saw. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that the, you know, we're motivated internally in ways that we can't really understand. And, and right. it makes us act our physiology a certain way by that motivation. So I, I will tell you this, I think you and your listeners will appreciate this. So I'm going to tell you the story of that pitch. It only take a second, but take I'm sitting, I'm sitting at this conference room table and this conference room table is huge. I mean, we're in, we're in a pretty, pretty nice size regional hospital, huge conference room table. I'm sitting, so I'm, it's a rectangle. So I'm sitting on the long side of the rectangle at the end of the table. So I'm, I'm like at the end of the table, but I'm on the long side facing directly across from me is the VP of facility services. Next to him is the senior engineer. And next to him is the CFO. Sitting to my left is my business partner. And in the, in the middle of the table, I have an 11 inch white MacBook. Remember those little laptops? That was my right. first, that was my first laptop. Well, not right. my first laptop, but I, so I had it. That's what I was doing my presentation on. I didn't even know how to hook it to the screen. I didn't have a clicker. I'm just leaning over, hitting the space bar and I'm going through this. And, and the CFO is sitting so far away. He's like squinting, looking through binoculars, trying to see what, <laughs> see my slides. And we get about, I get about two thirds of the way through my presentation and the VP uh, sitting straight across from me, who was kind of the main guy, right? He looks at he looks at me and he interrupts me. He says, "Can I ask you a question?" 
And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, has anybody ever told you no? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, sir, they haven't. I didn't tell him I, he was the first person I ever asked, <laughs> but, but I said, I said, no, sir, they haven't. And so he goes, well, then why wouldn't I do this? And I said, I don't know. Why wouldn't you? And he looks down the table at the CFO and he says, to, do you trust these guys? Because <laughs> he, he, this is the first time I've ever met the guy. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I trust him. Because we'd been working with the CFO and the engineer. Right. And then he turns back to me and he looks at me for a second. And he looked just like Herman Kane. Remember that guy? He yeah, ran, that guy ran for yeah, president. He, he was a Godfather away. pizza guy. Right. I think he died a couple of years ago. But anyway, he yeah. looked and sounded just like Herman Kane. And he looked at me for a second and he looked back at the CFO and he said, write the man a check. I swear that's exactly how that how deal. How cool is that story? <laughs> oh my gosh. That is, that is really, really cool. You know, it was great. Reminds me of a story, right? That whole story that you just talked about. So I was first in a business. I was at Merrill Lynch and the first 12 months I hit, I had to hit a certain level for assets under management. It was 10 million. I was at 6 million, six and a half million, something like that. So I had met with this prospective client. And this was like two months before the deadline, right? So first meeting we had, introductory meeting, et cetera. And then second meeting was, okay, bring in all your, your statements. Let's review everything, go through a financial planning process. So I never forget, at the time I was like 22, 23, talking about wet behind the ear, Jason, wet behind the ear, Jason was just incredible. But I really enjoyed the business, I had a passion for the business. So I sit down with these prospective clients and I'm going through their accounts. And this one account, I go to flip the account. It's an, it's an IRA. I said, oh, okay, this counts. I said, it's $3,000. She goes, no, Phil, it's $3 million. <laughs> I'm like, home. Like, I, I, you, as you can imagine, I'm 23 years old, first big serious meeting. I have to hit this deadline. And here's like $3 million. I'm like, oh, and they had another million behind that. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible, right? And thank God I kept my cool, obviously. Then we leave the meeting. Long story short, we had a, we had a follow-up financial plan meeting. I proposed everything right? I said, okay, Phil, thanks very much. You know, we're going to leave. We're going to think about it and then we'll call you. So they leave. I go back to my cubicle at the time. And then like 10, 15 minutes later, I get a phone call. I pick it up and it's this prospective client. I said, I said, Hey, Eileen, how are you? She goes, good, good. She goes, we're driving home. And we just want to let you know that we decide that we're going to hire you. I said, Great. And I didn't know this. I was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I said, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I hang up the phone. I'm like, holy cow. And so there's something about that deadline that I know that if I didn't hit that, that number, that I would have been in trouble. But besides the fact I knew it was going to be this business my whole life, but that was just one of those moments like you just talked about, which was just, uh, just incredible. And the other thing I just want to say too, regarding what you said, so the person said to you, has anybody ever said no to you, right? That's incredible. Well, first of all, you got this way about you. I could, I just know you for a short while. I could tell you got that way about you, but even besides that, like, I think about my business and you deal with people like myself all, all the time or people in business. And I know my process and I know how I manage people's money and how we service them. And I look at them like, who would say no to this? Like, I literally said it and I don't say it to myself in a way, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a non-humble way. I say it in a way like, this is exactly what everybody should have. So how can anybody say no? And, 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 in, and in the end, it's all about trust. That guy said to that other guy, hey, do you trust this guy? And mm -hmm. in the end, when people meet with me and I go through my process, and as much as I'm passionate about it, it's, it's, it's got to come down to that person on the other side of the table really liking me and trusting me. What is your, what is your thoughts as a, as a business coach to other businesses about that? Well, I think it, 
the the liking and trusting is a very 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 important key to success in sales um so one of the things i train when i train sales teams is i talk about there's this there's this principle um that that i learned in ministry and again this goes back to one of your earlier questions about what did i learn then that helped me now and there's this principle in ministry that i learned um called the principle of peace uh the, or the person of peace principle rather person of peace principle and it comes from when jesus was sending out the disciples uh to to, to spread the gospel and he and what he told them he said here's what i want you to do when you go to a town when you go to this this house you knock on the door and when they when they open the door you say peace be with you and then they if the peace returns you stay in that house and you 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 do what you do there until until you're done and then you go to the next one but if they say peace be with you and the peace isn't returned you just shake the dust off your feet and move on and that's weird because we don't we don't say things like that in our culture today in america but you know we know when someone would would open up to us and what what he was saying was this listen if they will if they like you if they listen to you and they serve you then you can share the gospel with them so if they like you and they return peace they return the greeting if they listen to you and they're you know they're being attentive they're not just shutting you down and right. they serve you in other words they would actually invite them in and let them stay in their home for several days if they do those three things then you can share the gospel they're receptive they're a person of peace and they'll be receptive now okay that that's very spiritual that's a that's a christianized version of something but 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 in sales the same thing is true. When we're in sales as entrepreneurs, as business owners, or whatever it is that we're selling, you've got to look for those same three things. Are they will they listen to you? Do they like you? And will they serve you? And so what does that mean? Well, if they won't listen to you, like you're telling them something like, yeah, well, whatever, and they they keep dismissing you, why would you keep butting your head against the wall trying to sell them? If they don't like you, and there's no reciprocation, why would you keep butting your head? And if they don't serve you, why would you keep butting your head? And what does that mean? Well, do they show up for meetings that were scheduled? Do they are they easy to work with? Will they provide you the table that you need to sit at to do your presentation? Will they show you how to hook to the screen? Are they serving you through the process? And so what I train salespeople is look for the person of peace. If the person of peace is there, you're going to have a great time doing this sale and they're, and they're probably going to buy from you. But why would you butt your head against the wall? So many salespeople just they don't know what a no sounds like. It's like um uh, dumb and dumber, you know, when, when he's, he's saying to Mary, he said, Mary, you know, what, what are my chances here? And she goes like, well, like not good. Yeah. He says, he says, well, what do you mean? Like one in a hundred? She goes, no, like one in a million. And <laughs> like on goes, a chance. So he's saying there's a chance and salespeople are the same way. We think there's a chance, but really it's the person of peace principle applies. In, and of course the, the gospel, but it applies in sales too. Like if, if the person ain't listening to you, don't do it. So are they listening, liking, trusting, serving? So when they, when that gets CFO said, yes, I trust them. They already liked me. They were listening to me and they had served me to the extent that they had, I'd been able to come in and do the pre-work I needed to get the presentation ready. That was the last piece. Did they trust you? Okay. They do. Let's do this. I love how you juxtapose your experience in ministry and Christian values into, into business. And you're right in so many ways. When I look back, I would say probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made, it's not really a mistake, but sort of is kind of hanging on to prospective clients that you know that are not going to come on board. But I feel what a lot of people do that are looking to grow a business, it makes them feel good to know they have somebody to call. But the reality is they should no longer call that person, save your energy and move on to somebody that shares exactly what you just said they should share as somebody who is a potential prospective client. Do you agree with that? 
I do. I think salespeople need to be better losers. Yes. We need to, we need to lose early because right. the worst part right. about sales is when you go through this whole long process in one of my companies, I mean, we're, we're in a six to nine month sales cycle. It's a lot of wasted money to go through that entire cycle to come in second. Or, you know, why, why would you do that? So if you know that you're going to lose, lose early, step out early. So that's why I pay attention to, you know, I teach in my three-part sales matrix, a system that I teach is the first part is you got to understand why people buy and you got to build a prospecting system around that so that you're not trying to get people who to buy that aren't going to. And then you have, I teach a 20 point matrix, which is how to identify your ideal customer based on past customers within about five seconds, you can know. And, and we put this matrix together for, for my clients and they're able to, to look really quickly and give them a score. Hey, this person's good. Let's go or let's not. And then the perfect sell sequence, which is a seven part sell sequence that I take people through to show them. If you follow this sequence, you're going to close more than 50%, 50% more deals than you would have otherwise. Keep your same process, just put it in the right sequence and you're going to sell more. So in terms of losing a prospect quickly, right? So how, how would you define that? Well, I think, um, so let's go to why people buy. Um, there are only four reasons why anybody buys anything. It doesn't matter if you're buying your suit, which you have a very nice suit on, or if you're buying this lamp that's behind me, you know, or a medical procedure or hamburger, it doesn't matter. There's only four reasons. And those four reasons are relationship, need, timing, money. Those are the only four reasons why anybody buys anything. And so what you have to do is you got to make sure that those, as many of those four reasons are present as early as possible in the sales process. So if you can't, if, if they, if the relationship is not present, they don't have any trust or goodwill in you or your company, your product or service, it's probably not going to work out and you need to bow out pretty quickly on uh, need, you know, have you been able to establish sufficient value that exceeds the cost of whatever it is you're selling? Because if you're selling something like Zig Ziglar always said, nobody's going to pay a hundred bucks for something they perceive is worth 10. So, you know, you do wealth management. I do business coaching among other things. If the person I'm talking to doesn't perceive our services as worth at least the same or more than what we're charging for it, they're not going to purchase. So right. you got to get, you got to come to that conclusion pretty quickly in the process. And then third, uh, timing, which is the one that you have the least amount of control over, but you at least need to understand it. If you're selling to businesses, you know, they have budget cycles, et cetera. And if the timing doesn't work, if you just showed up a month after the budget cycle closed and you have a million dollar project you're selling, well, it's not likely you're going to be able to sell it. So just know that you shouldn't go full bore. And then fast, the last is money. Money's not about how much it costs. It's about their ability to pay. Like if you like, I could, I could say to you, Hey, I've got this great thing and you love it. You want it. You like me, everything's working, but you have no ability to pay for it. Well, I'm wasting my time. So I teach that you've got to identify those four things early. And you can do that through questioning, asking the right questions. And once you do that, you will know whether or not to walk away or to continue pursuing the deal. Yeah. So it all happens up front. I love that. That's, that makes sense. That's great. Um, so from your experience, by right, my audience who's listening, I want my audience who's listening. One of my goals is a lot of people out there, as you know, they're in corporate America or they're involved in a career they're really not happy with. And they want to take that leap and go into entrepreneurship. What would you say from your experience and what you've done, the key aspects of an entrepreneur or to becoming an entrepreneur? I think risk and innovation are what defines an entrepreneur. Um, risk is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's, it's risking something of value for something of greater value. 
with the potential of greater value. Um, there are way people have way different tolerances for risk. Entrepreneurs generally have a pretty high tolerance for risk. They're willing to risk a lot, whether it be on a negative side relationships, which I don't recommend, uh, or money, you know, for, for potential return. And then innovation, are they able to innovate new and better ways to do some existing things? You don't have to be an inventor. You can be an innovator. I mean, Apple, you look at Apple, you know, they're not really an invention company. They don't invent, they didn't invent the phone. They didn't invent the podcast or uh, uh, they didn't invent um, uh, MP3 players. They didn't invent computers, right. but they innovated in such right. a way that it made it better experience for the customer. So I think entrepreneur, the two things, if you're going to look at going into entrepreneurship is what is my appetite for risk? Am I willing to risk? My wife, for example, has no appetite for risk. She wants to play it safe hundred percent of the time. And the world needs people like that to hold people like me back. <laughs> so, Cause I'm, I have you a do. very high. Yeah. We have a very high appetite for risk. And then you've got to also understand, are you able to innovate? Because if you are a black and white and can't see any color in things and you don't know how to make things better and you don't know how to tweak it, um, entrepreneurship would be difficult. But so what's the backup plan? Well, if you don't like corporate world, business ownership is not necessarily entrepreneurship. So maybe just owning a business, buy, buying a franchise or opening something that doesn't require risk and innovation, that might be something you could do because business owners, all business owners aren't entrepreneurs. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't own businesses. So they're not one and the same. And I think everybody thinks they are, but an entrepreneur has risk, takes on risk and innovation in a way that other people don't. It's really interesting. I have this plastic surgeon I'm really good friends with and I had asked him a question. I asked him, do you perceive yourself as, a, as an entrepreneur or a business owner? And through text, right? He's a great guy. And he said, he said, business owner. And I even said to myself, like, well, and as I started to think about this in terms of who I cater to, et cetera, what is the difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur? And this well, is I think it goes back. Yeah, it goes back to those two things. It's risk and innovation. For instance, so if you if you say, hey, I'm going to open up a Dunkin Donuts and I'm going to I'm going to buy a franchise and I have no idea what it costs, but I'm just going to put numbers to it. Let's say it's let's say it's twenty five thousand dollars to buy the franchise and you got to build out the building, you know, the, the retail space, et cetera. And it costs you another three hundred grand to do that. So you're three twenty five into this thing. All right, that's not a huge risk. Although some people would argue that, yeah, I'm risking 320. That, that, that's, that's an acceptable risk because you can calculate, hey, Dunkin' Donuts has done this for 50 years. There's a high probability of success. So that's low risk. And then innovation. Are Dunkin' Donuts franchise owners innovators? No, they're, yeah. they make the donuts, they sell the donuts, they make the coffee, sell the coffee. It's exactly the same way every single time. There's not really an opportunity to innovate. That person will own a business and not necessarily an entrepreneur. But I've got a friend of mine who owns two manufacturing plants that makes the donuts and owns about, I don't know, eight, uh, 80, I think 80 Dunkin' Donuts just here in Tennessee and then a bunch more in Massachusetts. I don't know the numbers, maybe I have the numbers wrong. Okay, that guy started as a business owner, but then grew into entrepreneurship. And now he's a mega successful multi-million dollar entrepreneur in a known quantity because he took risk to buy more stuff and to build bigger things and he innovated. I think that's the main difference. It doesn't mean the entrepreneur is better. Uh, it doesn't mean that business owner is better. It's just different. And I think it takes, I think it takes both to make this world work. I love that. I really do. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts are very successful businesses, a franchise. I think the most, the most successful franchises, I think that's something one can purchase from what I understand out of all the other options that are out there. Yeah, that and Subway. Subway's pretty, Subway, pretty high yeah, on that list yeah, too, yeah. as well. Yeah, I did hear that. Yep, yep. 
in terms of somebody's personal story, when you're talking to somebody uh, working with a business owner, right, or an entrepreneur from a selling perspective, how important is that person's personal story as they're conveying it to their potential client? I think your personal story is the most important part of it. And I'll go back to my ministry background again. Jesus, one of the greatest teachers or the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth, taught almost exclusively in stories. And, and, and this, I told my story at the beginning of this and, and hopefully connect with people in a way that they wouldn't have connected if I just came in and gave facts. I think stories are the way the world, the world works. It's the way we understand things. It's how our brains uh, synthesize and analyze concepts just through story. Analogies are such a great, you know, a great tool to let people know how to explain things. I was listening to a, I was listening to a book on the drive home last night and they gave a statistic about, and I forget what the number was, but how that people who have opposing viewpoints or beliefs uh, are willing, much more willing to accept them when they're speaking face to face through the story of the person telling it, as opposed to in text, just reading. Like if you open the open a newspaper and read that opposing viewpoint, you're likely not to to accept it. But if that person sat down across from you and you talked it through and they told stories about why they believe it, you're much willing, maybe not change your mind, but you're willing to at least embrace it. I think story is the most important thing. And I think so many entrepreneurs and salespeople don't spend enough time incorporating their story into their to, to use a, the term pitch, but into the pitch, into the whole process. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's almost, it's almost like I've said to myself all the time, like, how did I get such a passion for wealth management? It's not like I, when I was younger, I said, I want to be a wealth manager. I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed the, the, the nice stress of it and the whole kind of perception of, of finance. I did, I did kind of, I remember liking that, but I never said I was going to be a wealth manager, but then all of a sudden I'm sitting in my cubicle. It was like, I don't know, four months into this studying for the series seven. And I don't know what happened. I remember it was, must've been like seven thirty, eight o'clock at night, Jason, like really literally. And all of a sudden I had this like epiphany. And I said to myself, Holy cow, like I'm going to be in this business for the rest of my life. Like I literally said that. Right. And I'm saying like, why did I say that? And then I said, gosh, when I think back to how I grew up, I grew up in a working class family. My dad was a local three electrician, which is the local here in New York and in New York city, and often, and my mother stayed home, take cared, cared for myself and my older brother, Anthony, my youngest sister, Rosa. And then I remember I was 13 years old. My dad and I were sitting at a dining room table. It was a really hot summer night. We, we didn't have air conditioning, you know, at that time, uh, ever, actually, when I was a kid. <laughs> so so as we're, as we're conversing, my father and I, you know, he put his elbows on his knees and kind of shook his head. And he said, you know, Phil, he said, you know, life is really challenging. And I knew what he meant by that was that financially, things were challenging for him because he was laid off three months out of the year, six months out of the year, sometimes maybe a little bit more than that. And as you can imagine, making half of your income only in a given year with three children is not the easiest thing to do. Right. So, and then he looked up at me and he almost conveyed like, Hey, you're going to be in that same situation. I don't, he didn't mean it maliciously, but kind of that's the sense that I got. And I was like, Holy cow, man, I got to go out there and get to work. Like literally the next day I was like, I worked at a pizzeria. I, I was mopping floors, cleaning dishes. So most kids were coming home, playing with their friends and hanging out. I literally was going to school, played a sport every season. I went to work until 9, 10 o'clock at night, did homework until 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, went to college, played Division One lacrosse. So school, lacrosse, worked at a country club, same thing, did homework until 1 o'clock at night. And I'm like, and then when I started this career, again, I think this is like all subconsciously. It's like, all right, what do I do for a living? People, entrepreneurs that you work with, 
who built their business over 30, 40 years, they come to me like, Phil, all right, we want to hire you. Here's my money. I'm like, holy cow. Like my goal mission is to make sure you don't feel like the way my dad did. And, and so my goal, if you go to my website, it says help you achieve peace of mind as it relates to all your money is number one. And I use the grit that I learned, which is the hard work, right. To build processes and strategies that came in play. So it's like, as, as I started to think through this, like my personal story and how it juxtaposes to what I do and, and how I convey that it, it's, I just think that if clients don't and prospects don't hear that story, then it's just like, all right, Phil is going to do financial planning. Yeah. He's going to do a good job. And, but when I hear that story and they understand it, because I know when I heard your story just now and other stories like that, it, for me, it goes like this all of a sudden to like that. It like, it's like the glue that yeah. brings it together. You know, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, you, you're exactly right. And that goes back to what we're talking about with stories, 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 sell stories, connect stories are the way everybody synthesizes and analyzes information. And uh, right. I think, I think salespeople and entrepreneurs need to put their stories into their process more often. I, I know one of the things that I train when I train sales teams is I talk about, you need to tell your story. So many people, as salespeople, they show up and they throw up. And the first, and the first thing they throw up is they throw up all the cool things about their business. We've been in business this many years. We do this, this, <laughs> and here's the thing. Nobody gives a crap. Nobody at that point in this, nobody, in this, cares. In this, nobody cares. But if you say, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Smith, before I get started in this, I, I just need to tell you a quick story. Now, first of all, you've got their attention because everybody loves a story. I don't care who you are. And you say, I want to tell you why I'm sitting here with you today. Here's where I came from. Here's what I do. Here's why I came to work for this company. And here, so it, you don't have to be the entrepreneur to tell that story. You can still tell your story. And so crafting that story in a way that connects, it doesn't have to be smarmy. It doesn't have to be ooey gooey. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be any of that stuff. It just needs to be the truth. And it needs to lead you to a place where you're saying, that's why I'm here today with you. And then they're going to, okay, I get you. Go. Yeah. They still might not buy from you, no, but at no. least they're connecting with you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or not connecting to you. And like you said before, if they're not connecting to that, then it's, they're not going to be a client anyway. And then you just move on. Right. So uh, agreed. So as we think about entrepreneurship, your story, right, where you came from, what you did and what you're doing and other business people that you speak to, when is enough enough? In other words, you have a friend who has probably st you know, started with one Dunkin' Donuts and now has multiple Dunkin' Donuts. But when is enough enough for all of us? Well, it depends upon um, how much impact you want to make in this world. So I don't like the word enough. I think that the word enough is used by people who don't have good imaginations and desired impact. And so when they say, you know, uh, there, I watched this TikTok video. It wasn't too long ago. And this guy was talking about how, you know, we need to learn word, what enough means. And, and, you know, this this greed for more and more and more. We just need to learn. Now, I get where he's coming from. And I agree in principle with the guy's point. But I don't like the idea of enough. And here's why. Because let me, let me and I'll tell a story <laughs> to, to you tell what we're talking about. So if I come to you and I'm, I'm married, I got two kids. And I say to you, hey, man, uh, listen, I only want enough money just for me. I, I, my wife is on her own kids. Are on. I just, I want Philip, won't you help me? I only want enough money just for me. You would go, wow, that's really selfish. But then if I, but, but if I come to you and say, Hey, Philip, I just want enough money for me and my wife. I don't really care about the kids. Kids are on their own. You go, Ooh, that's a little weird, but okay. 
And then I could tell you, hey, I, I just want enough money for me and my wife and kids. You'd probably go, okay, cool. Well, what, what about all the other people that live in my community? What about all the people around the world who still need help? Why are we not concerned about those people? I think I don't like enough because I think there's always room for improvement. So if I go out and I create a multi-billion dollar empire, I'm able to do more than just the enough that I want to take care of me and my family. So if I don't want to help those people, then yeah, enough. There's a place that enough is enough. But I think if I want to create that, I need to make more. And that's what I want to help people do. I help entrepreneurs work less and make more. That's my whole shtick. That's what I want to do. Because if you can make more, more money, more freedom, more choices and more impact, isn't that what you want? I think the enough mentality comes from a place of lack of perspective from a lot of people, but sometimes it's just selfishness. And then even in the evil side of it, it's just a bad, evil poverty mentality that says, ah, you have more than me. So you're, you're evil. That's not, that's not what it's about. And I think part of it also, I, first of all, I love what you're saying. I really do. I think it's great. And one of the things that I want to just add to that is, you know, the one thing that COVID, one of the things that COVID has done for me, at least is kind of kept me in this bubble, whether it's in my office here or, you know, going straight home and, where you know before COVID, I would go to industry events, other events, and I would talk to people like you and others, and who have this like who has it, who have this bigger mindset, right? Bigger than even mine, which motivates me. And I always come home from those events like, holy cow! Like I thought I was this, you know, whatever. But after going there, like these guys are like two, three, ten x me, right? Like Grant Cardone always says, like that. And and that's what's so and that's what's so great of get you know getting out there and, and developing the you know it's. The, like the mentality is never enough, not in a bad way. I always feel like entrepreneurs and business people, they don't say it's never enough in a bad way. Like, it's not like they're really racing for money. Most of them, it's more that this passion about this big mindset vision, you know, that they have. But I was going to say to you is the enough thing, Jason, does come from if you're sacrificing other parts of your life to just expand, 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 then that's where it becomes a bit of a challenge, right? Yeah, it's greed. I, sorry? That's greed. I think, I think the opposite, I think a lot of people who talk about enough is that they think that that is, that is the solution for greed. And it isn't. Um, greed is a problem. And if you are one of these people who never enough is never enough because you're greedy and you want to spend it on your own yourself, that's a problem. Right. But, 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 but just saying, Hey, don't you have enough? Doesn't fix the greed problem. Right. It's like people that want to sell these uh, paper product straws because the plastic's killing the turtles. Listen, the problem isn't the straw. The problem is people are littering. Like, or, so we're going to give you a paper straw and just throw it about when you're done with it. Like that's not fixing the right problem. So I think the enough mentality is aiming at the wrong problem. They're aiming at greed when you can't fix greed with, but just by saying, Hey, isn't enough enough. That's not the way to fix greed. Greed is a mentality and it comes from an evil place. Yes. And I don't sense that yes. most of the people that I work with, I know some greedy people, right? but I not very many, like most people are, I think people with poverty mentality look at people who have a lot and want more out of greedy when in fact it isn't. It's just that they have a bigger mindset, like you said, than the poverty poverty mentality. Definitely 100%. You know, I mean, and you know this more than anybody is that, you know, you have such a passion for what you do as I do as well. So it's like, you know, money's a, money's a function of that, that, you know, that follows you. But it's first, you know, you, you're going with that passion and, and then, you know, money follows versus the opposite where it's like money follows and that's where greed comes in and I know a lot of people like that. And it's a terrible way 
you know, they kind of define themselves, right, you know, by their money in, in every aspect. They're always, they're talking about it in a non-humble way, et cetera. So totally agree with you. So wh where do you stand, Jason, in terms of balance of life, right? So, you know, you're married, I'm married, I have a wife, you have a wife, I have three boys, you have two children, I think you just said. Um, you know, we, we have, so in, li in life you have, you have your health, right? You have family, you have your career, you know, then you have spirituality, right? So, you know, those are four things, you know, some people are not spiritual, some people are. So how do you, you yourself, right? Plus recommend to create a balance where, and that's what I meant a little bit about before, where you're not sacrificing those other important aspects of your life. Well, I think balance is, is key. I think you have to make sure that life is, doesn't get out of whack. Um, there are times in the life of an entrepreneur that you're going to have to put in a lot of time and effort and energy because that's just what it requires. But that isn't the norm. That, that, is a, that is an exception to the rule. The life of an entrepreneur should be providing freedom, freedom of time, freedom of energy, freedom of money, freedom of choices. That's what it should be providing. So if you are finding yourself making the money that you wanted, but you don't have the time that you wanted, well, then you're out of balance. And just like a wheel that's out of balance in a car, it makes the car vibrate and everybody in it knows something's wrong, but we don't know which wheel it is. We don't know what's going on and we have to take it to the shop and they have to balance it out. I think we have to balance our lives out against the things that are most important to us. Um, I've got a client I'm working with right now and, you know, he confided in me that, you know, there's some issues, not nothing terrible, but some issues with his wife getting upset that he's traveling so much. And that that's a story all too common for entrepreneurs traveling. The wife gets mad or it could be that could be the husband, depending on what the situation is. But but she was a little upset about it. So what I one of my homework assignments I've given this guy is that when he, we meet again, is I want him to show up with a list of all his priorities. And I gave no other instructions other than that. I just just list your priorities. So my intent to go through that with him is to say, okay, if if so-and-so or such-and-such or whatever is at the top, now what's at the second and the third, fourth position, now let's put hours per week spent on each of these things. So if you say your wife is your top priority, but you only spend waking hours, you don't get to count the ones you're asleep with her, but the waking hours, you're only spending 15% of your time and you say work is the third most because the kids are in there in the middle, right? And, but you're spending... 89% of your waking hours at work, then you are out of balance. So how do you balance that out? Entrepreneurs have, have the unique opportunity to balance their life around their life, their work around their lifestyle more than anybody else. Corporate employees don't get that opportunity as much right. as we do, but I can build a lifestyle that I want. I work from home. I love working from home. I've built the life that I don't mind working from home. My wife's like, why don't you just go to the office or something? I'm like, I don't want to. I like, this is the life that I build. I, I've got a view out the back window. I can see the field. I can see the green grass. I can, this is the lifestyle I built. So I built it the way I wanted it. And I've got, um, my wife's actually working with a, with a, a friend of my daughter. She's, my daughter's 19 and her friend, I think is 20 or 21. And she's, trying to figure out her life, like what to do next. And one of the programs she wanted to go into is the degree that my wife has. And so she's, she's wanting to meet with my wife to get some perspective on how do I plan for life? You know, she's 20, 21 years old trying to figure out life. And so my wife asked me today, what, what would you tell her? I would say, I'd ask her what she wants her lifestyle to be. Do you want to live in a house? Do you want to live in a trailer? Do you want to live in an RV? Do you want to live on an Island? Do you, do you want to travel? How much money do you want to have? What types of, 
if that figure out what lifestyle you want and then build your work around that. And I think so many people do it backwards. They go out for a job and then they realize later, crap, this doesn't provide the lifestyle that I want. So I think if you pay attention to what lifestyle you want, balance is easier to attain. I agree. And it's the same thing. Like when people come in with me right away, when they come in to meet me for the first time, they're all wondering if I'm going to say, Hey, show me your statement, show me your investments and so forth. When the reality is, is what I want to know is what is the vision for your life for the rest of your life? Right. That's number one, just like you said. Right. And number two is, you know, what's the cost of that lifestyle? So what is your number? So what's your monthly number on an after tax basis that you need to live this vision? Right. So I want to understand that first. And then from there, it's like, okay, what are the assets and what do we need to have saved up to be able to, I call unlock a work optional lifestyle. So, you know, which is being able, being at the point that if you want to walk away from work, you've accumulated enough capital that you'll be able to generate enough income to be able to live this lifestyle that you want to live. So it's all about that. Really, uh, really, really agree about that. So, um, so Jason, this is awesome. I don't want to take up any more of your time that I already did. I thought this was phenomenal. I think it's very helpful for, for entrepreneurs that are really listening in on many of the things that you've said and connecting with people, et cetera. I'd love to learn more about what you do as well. I think that would be terrific. Um, you know, so, so thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor talking to you and I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation. I sure did. I'm sure I sure did as well. Thank you very much. 